Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Hello, GCA Internet listener. Yes, that's right. I'm talking to you. Actually, I'm only talking to you because right now I'm standing in a completely empty building. The congregation has gone home and they've heard the morning message. And actually, the morning message went pretty well. And then I walked over to the recorder to turn it off and take the sound card out only to discover that none of it recorded. Well, that means one of two things. Either I can put a note up on the internet saying nothing this morning recorded, or I can come back here and record the message by myself again. And because I really appreciate our internet listeners, of whom there are apparently quite a few, I decided to come up here to GCA and stand in an empty building, clip on a microphone, and see how much of this morning's message I could record. Now, obviously, because there's nobody in the room with me, my uh, corny jokes are going to fall flat, and I'm not going to have the same call and response that I had this morning. We had a few moments of hand-raising and talking about individuals that simply won't be the same. But... The content of God's Word doesn't change. That content is the same, so I'm going to preach through it again so that our Internet listeners are caught up with exactly where the congregation is. And I'll say again, I certainly do appreciate our Internet listeners. Turn in your Bible to Mark 14. If you're driving, don't bother doing that. If you're out jogging and listening on headphones or you're up at the gym... Trust me, I'll read it to you. At this point in Mark 14, Jesus has all the elements exactly in the place he wants them. He has kind of set up the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem so that they want him dead. After all, he has just ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and crowds, thousands, have been singing his praises throwing their coats and palm branches in the streets. And so the Jewish leaders are afraid that they're going to lose their power, their authority, even the way that they do their jobs. They have a vested interest in getting rid of Jesus and getting rid of the teaching that he is doing. After all, he has already called them whitewashed sepulchers. He's already said, how are you going to escape the fires of hell? And if he is who he said he is, then in fact, he's the son of God. He's the one that's going to sit on the white throne. He's the one that's going to be in judgment. And they are the ones who are going to be judged. So they have a vested interest in stopping this preachment and in fact, stopping Jesus altogether. But they have a problem. The crowds are overflowing in Jerusalem because it's the time of the Passover now, Mark here is going to tell us that according to his account, it's two days before the Passover when we start reading Mark 14. 
and the crowds are kind of overwhelming there in Jerusalem. And so many of these people believe that Jesus is the son of David. He's the long-awaited king, whether they think of him as Messiah, whether they think of him as a political king, they're very much in favor of him, especially politically, because they want him to throw off the yoke of Rome and be the long-awaited king that they're anticipating. So the crowd is on Jesus' side, and Jerusalem is full of people because of Passover, and so the Jewish leaders are concerned that while he's there in their midst, if they grab him at this very moment, that the crowds are going to riot because the crowds are following him. And so verse 2 is going to tell us that the Jews had decided that they're not going to be able to accomplish this during the Passover, during the feast, during the festival, says the NASB. And yet, it is absolutely necessary that Jesus die on the Passover. Ever since John the Baptist looked up and pointed at Jesus, his cousin, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that identified Jesus as the Passover sacrifice, the Paschal Lamb. And in order to complete that imagery, that symbol of the Passover Lamb, Jesus has to die But not just on any day. He has to die on the Passover. But the Jewish leaders are determined not to kill him on the Passover. So Jesus has to speed up the timeline. Things have to happen in very quick succession here. Now there is a prophecy already that says that someone who eats at the table with Jesus, who shares his bread, is going to lift his hand against him. Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition from the beginning. Jesus, in fact, I think, chose Judas for the particular purpose of betraying him. Because all of this that is happening right here, all of the details are all very specific, and he's in control of every single one of them. And that's going to be emphasized as we continue to read through this chapter. So Jesus needs to hurry up the timeline. The events have got to get rolling. And he's going to do it through Judas, through the son of perdition. He's going to inspire him to go ahead and betray him to the Jews for the specific purpose of making sure that he does end up on the cross on Passover. And by inspiring Judas and getting Judas to go to the Jews and say, I can arrange that you can get to Jesus at a private time when he's away from the crowds, at a time when the crowds are not going to riot. They're not even going to know what you're doing secretly, privately. Well, that's a way of getting the Jews to think, well, now we've got to do it right now. His betrayer is here right now. We know where he's going to be. So Jesus needs something to ignite that moment. He needs to inspire Judas to go ahead and betray him. And the thing that he's going to use is money. Because Judas is the treasurer for the group. John tells us that Judas carried the bag. But John also tells us that Judas was a thief. In other words, Judas could be persuaded by money. 
He was taken with money, and Jesus is going to use the question of money in order to demonstrate to Judas that apparently he and Jesus are not on the same page, that they are not in league, that they have different agendas. And Jesus is going to bring that to a head by getting Judas involved in an argument about money. And then Jesus is going to call him out for it, demonstrate the error of his thinking, and I think that humiliates Judas to the point where he's then willing to go and betray Jesus to the Jews, which is going to speed up the timeline, which is going to allow the Jews to go ahead and take Jesus during the Passover feast, and Jesus is going to be on the cross on Passover. Now, Passover every year, according to the Jewish scripture, is on Nisan 14th. Regardless of what day of the week that falls on, it's always Nisan 14th. The next day after that is Nisan 15th, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a week-long feast that includes a high day on the 15th, and a high day at the end of the feast. Then, from the 14th to the 15th through that week, there's always going to be one first day of the week. In other words, if Passover happens to land on a Tuesday, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on a Wednesday, it's going to continue from that Wednesday through to the next Wednesday. Somewhere in that week, there's going to be a first day of the week. A Sunday. Now remember that according to Jewish reckoning, the way a day is reckoned is not the same way that we 21st century Gentile Christians reckon a day. We assume that the day starts at midnight. But according to the Jewish lunar calendar, a day begins at sundown. So like sundown Tuesday would be the beginning of Wednesday. Now, the reason I'm going through those calendar moments is to say that Jesus ended up keeping the Passover with his apostles the night that Passover was beginning. And then he was tried through the night, and the next day he was on the cross, still Passover time. That evening is the beginning of a high day, according to John because it is the first day of unleavened bread. That's the reason that Joseph of Arimathea was so anxious to get the body of Jesus down off the cross and into the tomb before sundown. So Jesus, the Paschal Lamb, actually died on the Passover, and his body was put into the grave right at the beginning of unleavened bread, because his body, his perfect body, which had no sin in it, was typified by the unleavened bread. All the Jews had to get leaven out of their camps, out of their houses, because leaven was a type of sin. Jesus, the perfect bread, the sinless bread, was put into the tomb at the beginning, at the high day of unleavened bread. And then during that week, there was naturally a first day. And that's when Jesus rose. He rose at the beginning of the first day of the week. We're told that in the Bible. And he became, according to Paul, the first fruits of the resurrection. So in his death, burial, and resurrection, he satisfied three of the spring feasts. 
50 days later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes along, and that means that all four of the spring feasts were satisfied in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and in the coming of the Holy Spirit and the inception of the church. So it was absolutely necessary that Jesus die on Passover. Now, the reason I'm stressing that is because the one time that the Jews did not want Jesus to die was Passover. They were determined not to kill him during the Passover feast, but they needed to catch him. They needed to get him, according to the NASB, by stealth. In other words, they needed a cunning plan where they could get Jesus away from the crowds, and then they were going to try him and kill him before the crowds were any wiser and before there was any riot. So Jesus had to move the timetable forward quickly, which he did by getting Judas to go betray him, and he inspired Judas to do it by differing with him over what the priority is. Is the priority Jesus? Is the priority the poor? Or is Jesus the absolute authority, the absolute center of the religious universe, regardless of the situation? Well, that takes us to Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 1, which says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread was two days off. Something you need to keep in mind is that because Passover, Nisan 14th, was also the preparation day for the high day to come on the 15th, oftentimes when people referred to unleavened bread, they also meant Passover, because Passover was a vital part of that week-long feast of unleavened bread. So Mark says that there was the Passover and unleavened bread, and that was all just two days off. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. They were attempting to capture him, judge him, and kill him by stealth by cunning, by some weaselly way that the people simply wouldn't be aware of. Because, verse 2 says, for they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot from the people. So that's the background. That's the setup. Jesus has everything in place. All he has to do now is inspire the betrayer to go do what he's there for. So verse 3 says, And while he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper. Now we don't know a whole lot about Simon the leper. If you go back and read Mark chapter 1, we do find that Jesus cured a leper. The one who said, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus was moved with compassion and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Well, most commentators will tell you that that's probably who Simon the leper is because Mark just makes reference to him like people would know who he was. He's Simon the leper. So Jesus was with him in Bethany and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, John tells us that that was Mary, the sister of Martha, who actually brought the expensive spikenard for Jesus. 
What you need to know about spikenard, though, is that it is often used and usually used as a burial ointment. Here in America in the 21st century, we have the luxury of running water so that we can bathe and we can shower and we can clean up our body odors. And we can do that with soap or we can do that with alcohol-based perfumes. We can wash away and keep our body odors at bay. But 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, when water was something you had to go and get and bring into your house, that regular bathing was not a common thing. So they would use spices and ointments and fragrance in order to cover up their body odors. But this particular ointment was not just a common ointment. It was a very expensive ointment, very odoriferous. And in fact, it was so valuable that it was kept in an alabaster container, an alabaster vial, where you would have to break the vial to get to the oil inside. Mark even emphasizes that when he says that it was a costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and she poured it over Jesus' head. Now, Jesus knew what was happening. Jesus, in fact, is going to say that she was anointing him for his burial. He wasn't dead yet. He had been saying to his apostles, to the disciples, that he was going to die, that he was going to be turned over to the Jews, that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried. But then three days later, he was going to be alive again. And they did not understand what he was talking about. But as she pours this burial spice over him, which is a very common thing to do in the Middle East. After three days, after a body is fully and rightly dead, sort of like when Jesus came to see Lazarus, the people there said, behold, he stinks. Well, after three days is typically when people would come and anoint the body with expensive odoriferous oils for the purpose of keeping the smell down and anointing the body. She took some of this oil and poured it over Jesus' head while he was alive. And he's going to say, she has anointed my body for the death, for the fact that I'm going to die. This is a burial thing she is doing for me. And again, none of them seem to comprehend it. None of them seem to understand it. But it was, in fact, so important so valuable and so prophetic that Jesus ends up saying, wherever this gospel is told in the whole world, tell about what this woman did. Not, I think, because of the value of the oil that was poured on him, but because she was prophesying his death. She was anointing his body for burial. But Jesus is also going to use this moment to inspire Judas to go betray him. This is going to be like the last straw. This is going to be the one that finally convinces Judas that he and Jesus are not playing on the same team. So we read in verse 4, But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? 
Now, in John's account of the story, he tells us that it is Judas who is the one who was so offended by that. And it appears that he's also trying to get other people on his side when he makes the big announcement here. Come verse 10, Mark is going to tell us that it is Judas Iscariot. But not at this moment. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. So they're saying you've made a bad decision. You've taken this very valuable thing and you've just wasted it by pouring it over Jesus. We could have sold it and we could have used the money to feed the poor. And now John tells us again that it's not that Judas was particularly concerned for the poor. What it was was that he was a thief and that he had the bag. He was the treasurer for the group and apparently he liked to pilfer from the group. In other words, he was very motivated by money. He was very concerned about money which is completely unlike Jesus, who can take money out of fish's mouths if he needs money. So Judas argues this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money could have been given to the poor. You will also notice that for the rest of his life, Judas never does anything for the poor. In fact, he's going to betray Jesus, then he's going to be convicted, that he has betrayed innocent blood, He's going to give the money back and then he's going to go and hang himself. So he never actually does anything from that point forward for the poor. So Jesus is going to argue against him and say, the poor you're always going to have with you. Verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. Now, good deed is the NASB rendering, but what that word means is she has done something noble for me. She's done something uh, beyond just good, but something that's really significant and valuable for me because he's recognizing how she is satisfying scripture by preparing his body for burial, and she is speaking prophetically of the death to come a mere two days later. So let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good, a valuable, a noble deed for me. For the poor, says verse 7, for the poor you always have with you. Now through the years I have heard that verse used in so many bad ways in order to say, well, I don't really have to help the poor. After all, Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. And it seems like such a daunting task to help all the poor in the world. I'm only one man. I can't help everybody. So I'm just not going to help anybody because after all, Jesus said, you always have the poor with you. But that wasn't Jesus' point. His point was the poor are always going to be available for you to do good to. But me, you're not always going to have. One more time, Jesus is going to prioritize himself. He's going to set himself at the center of the religious universe. What you think of me determines your eternity. 
I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He keeps talking about himself and the necessity of prioritizing himself. But Judas, not truly caring about the things of God or the words of God, he would rather have Jesus not be anointed for the burial that's coming that apparently Judas has no idea about at this point. He would rather that money be given to him so that he can ostensibly help the poor while he's busy pilfering out of the bag. So Jesus says, for the poor you always have with you, and whenever you wish, you can do them good, but you do not always have me. She has done what she, the NASB says, what she could. The idea of that phrase is, she has satisfied what she is meant to do. She has done what her purpose is. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. So he knows full well that he is headed for a tomb in a mere two days. And he says that the pouring of spikenard onto his body is a way of anointing him for the fact that he's going to die. There's no point in anointing somebody for burial and death if they're not about to die. So one more time, he is pointing out not only the centrality of himself over everybody else on the planet, but he's pointing out the centrality of his death because his death is the determining factor in the redemption and justification of all his people, the people who have been written down in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. This is the culmination of the agreement that would bring them to their ultimate salvation and redemption. So he's pointing out the necessity of his death, the importance of his death, and now he's being anointed for his death so that he can lay his body in the grave. It's, it's just an enormous object lesson. And they apparently are not getting it. So verse 10 says, And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. In other words, that's what did it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was the moment when Judas thought, okay, enough. I'm not part of this now. He had been one of the 12, but he had been identified by Jesus as the son of perdition. He was the one that Jesus chose for the purpose of betraying him. And now the same way that the woman, Mary, was satisfying her purpose in doing what she was supposed to do in anointing the body of Jesus before the burial. Now Judas was accomplishing the thing that he was put on the planet for. He was there to betray Jesus, to guarantee that the Jews would make sure that Jesus was on the cross two days later, on the Passover, satisfying the typology of the Passover lamb. And so it's no surprise that Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. And they, the chief priests, were glad when they heard this because it's going to keep them out of trouble. It's going to prevent riots in the streets. It's going to keep the peace. We can just take Jesus 
and we can cunningly just stealthily get him away from the crowds, judge him, and have him on the cross before anybody really understands what's happened. So they're really happy to hear this, and they promised to give him money. Because, again, he is motivated by money. That's what Judas is all about. But even the price that he was paid was already written. It was already determined in the Old Testament. The price of a man's servant, if he's been gored through by an ox, 30 pieces of silver. And so they weighed out their 30 pieces of silver for Judas. So Judas' betrayal was already prophesied. When he would betray him was already prophesied. And the amount of money he would receive in exchange was already prophesied. In other words, these things had to happen. God is a God of details. And Jesus is in charge of the details here. And as I said, it's going to become even more obvious as we continue to read. Verse 12 says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, that's an example of what I talked about earlier, that Passover was considered part of the unleavened bread feast. It's just simply the first day of it. So on the first day of unleavened bread, the Passover lamb is killed. That is Nisan 14th. So Jesus could, on the evening of the 13th, share a Passover supper with his apostles. He could be caught that night, which is now the 14th. He could be tried and put on a cross by the next afternoon, and that is still Passover. And he satisfies all of the Passover qualifications, requirements, and typology. On that first day of the unleavened bread, when it was Passover, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They knew that Jesus would keep the Passover because being the perfect law keeper, he would keep all the feasts, but they're in Jerusalem. So where do you want us to go prepare that we should eat the Passover? We're not in Galilee. We're not back home. Where would you like us to go and eat? And he is going to give them direction that is based in his absolute sovereign control of everything, including the details. Verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. So what do you think the chances are really that when they got to Jerusalem, there wasn't going to be a man carrying a pitcher of water? There had to be. He's in control of all of it. He's in control of the fact that there was going to be a servant who was going to be carrying a pitcher of water. Now think about that because it's a whole lot more than just that single detail. It's a lot more than just the man was carrying a pitcher of water. So follow him. It also means that Jesus was in charge of everything this guy did, how he lived out his day. What if he had shown up a little bit late and the disciples had to stand around? What if on his way to go get water, 
he struck up a conversation with a friend and they decide to go somewhere else. What if he decided he didn't feel well that day? So he couldn't go out and get any water. He had to stay in bed that day. There are just so many variables that could have happened. And yet, because Jesus is absolutely sovereign, when he says that things happen, those things absolutely have to happen. Once he says that there's going to be a man there, and he's going to have a pitcher, and he's going to walk back to the exact place where there is an upper room already furnished and prepared, well, then that has to happen. And by the way, what are the chances that there just happened to be a house with an upper room fully furnished and prepared? And what about the fact that Jesus is going to say, just tell the master of the house that I need the room and he'll give it to you. All of these very, very specific details are all completely under his sovereign control. And the events that lead up to the details are completely in his control. That's the only way that these things could work out exactly the way that he said they were going to work out. The same way that he said, go inside the city and you're going to find a donkey untie it and bring it to me. If anybody asks you what you're doing, just say the master has need of it and they will let you have the donkey. The same way that that worked out and gosh, what a coincidence. The same way he said, go when you walk into the city, it's going to be a man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him and then watch this. Wherever he enters, in other words, whatever house he goes back to, Say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, fully furnished, completely ready, prepare for us there. So of all the servants that might be out in the streets that day, there's only going to be one with a pitcher of water who you're specifically going to follow. When you follow him, he will just happen to go back to a house that has a large upper room already fully prepared. So you then prepare the Passover for us there. None of these details are left to chance. Everything is up to the Lord of glory who makes sure that absolutely every detail happens because he has to eat the Passover with his disciples that evening because he has to explain to them about his body and blood, because he has to tell them about the inception of the new covenant. Then he has to go and pray, be betrayed, has to die, and he has to be dead that afternoon. And why does all that have to work out that way? Well, because it's written. It's already said in the scripture. It's already prophesied, so it has to happen. Now, let's talk about that idea of it's already written for just a moment. Because what we read in the Bible is that there is a book, a heavenly book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it are written the names of everybody that Jesus is going to redeem and justify and glorify. All the people who are in Christ, Christ in them, those names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
So in other words, it's written. And as we go through this lifetime, the details are sometimes going to look like a mess. This world looks like a great big mess. And it's easy to get overwhelmed by the details. It's easy to look at ourselves and say, how could God save someone like me? Look at what I've done. Look at how bad I am. Look at the details. But Jesus, I'm glad to say, is just as in charge of the details here in Mark 14 as he is today. Today, he is still in charge of the details that lead to the ultimate end. The ultimate end in Mark 14 was that he would keep the Passover supper with his disciples. The ultimate end of the Lamb's book of life is that all his people are going to be saved. In order to accomplish the ultimate end, Jesus has to make sure that the details work out. And he's still in charge of the details. And that's very, very good news. If you're anything like me, sometimes you start thinking that the details of your life don't really line up with your Christian profession. It's really good to know that he is Lord over even details. So he said to them, go into the city. There's going to be a man who's carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare for us there. So the disciples went out. They came to the city and they found it just as he had told them. Gee, what were the chances? What was the likelihood that it was all going to work out exactly the way the sovereign Lord said it was going to work out? So they prepared the Passover there. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So that's a fact. That's already written in the scripture. That has to happen. One who is there eating his bread is going to raise his hand against him. Notice also that Mark says that they were reclining at the table. 2,000 years ago, Middle Eastern tables, and still in some parts of the world today, the way that folk will eat at a table is not sitting in chairs. They will sit on the floor, oftentimes with pillows, and they sit at a very low table. They will oftentimes lean back on their left elbow and then use their right hand to pick up food and put it in their mouth. As a consequence, when people are sitting close to each other around the table, they lean back onto each other. John tells us that he was leaning back on Jesus' breast. So he was the closest one to Jesus during this time. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely it's not I. Surely it's not me. It can't be me. 
And if they said that one by one as they worked their way around the table, then chances are Judas was right in there saying, well, surely not me, trying to make it look like he couldn't be the one, even though he had already made his bargain with the Jewish leaders. So Jesus said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who dips with me in the bowl. The bread they were eating was a a flat bread, kind of a, a tough bread. And sometimes in order to make it have a little more taste or to make it a little more chewy, they would dip the bread into various different kinds of oils and olive oils and spices in order to make the bread more palatable. It's called dipping the sop or sopping up some of the oil with bread. And Jesus said, it is going to be one of the 12. It's going to be the one who dips with me in the bowl. I'm going to take one moment and speculate a little bit. This is just Jim thinking. This is just putting together the pieces and sort of assuming something that the Bible doesn't spell out for us. But here's what I'm thinking. We know that at one point Jesus said to Peter, Satan desires to have you that he can sift you like wheat. Satan knows the scriptures. Satan knows that he gets one of the 12. He knows that that's going to happen. And apparently, he thought the one he was going to get was Peter, Mr. Sandal and Mouth. Peter was always saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things. And so Satan determined that he was going to get Peter. But what's really interesting about it is when Jesus said to him, Satan has desired to have you, that he could sift you like wheat. The thing that Jesus did not say to Peter was, you better clean up your act. You better get busy doing better because your actions have convinced Satan that you're the one that he gets. And he came to me and he asked me for permission to have you. Jesus did not say, therefore, do better. Therefore, clean up your act. Therefore, start doing more righteous deeds. Instead, what Jesus said to him was, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, then strengthen your brethren. In other words, the answer to sinfulness, the answer to our failed works is never do better works. Make yourself better than you used to be. Do better is never the answer. That is not the solution. That cannot clean you up. Now, yes, absolutely, we are told to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Since flesh profits nothing, we're to mortify those deeds that are rebellious against God. We're to put them to death. So absolutely, we are to live a life that is commensurate with, that reflects the fact that we are saved by a holy God, which is why Josiah this morning could read out of 1 Peter, I'm holy, therefore you be holy. I'm separate. You, you also be separate. The expectation is that we would live holy lives, that we wouldn't be like the world, and that as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord, that our behavior will reflect that. 
But what is the answer to our sin? What is the answer to Peter's sin problem? Peter was sinning enough that Satan desired to have him apparently believe that he was going to get him. So what is the solution for us? Because some of us can't point to very much in our lives that actually would make us righteous or holy or sanctified. The answer is not do better. The answer to your sinfulness and your depravity is not clean yourself up. The answer is always the intercession of Jesus. The answer is always Jesus has prayed. Jesus has interceded. Jesus has prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. And therefore, that faith is going to be maintained through this lifetime. And then in eternity, that faith is traded for righteousness. That's where genuine, true, sanctified righteousness comes from. It never comes from ourselves, our ability, our flesh, or our efforts. We don't get more sanctified than what Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf. Not only does he accomplish it, but he continues it, he sustains it, he is the answer for our sinfulness, Not only was he a sacrifice for our sinfulness, but he is also the one interceding for us, pleading our cause, being an advocate with the Father. That is the only right solution for sin. Okay, well, I said all that to say, at this moment, when Jesus is in the upper room with his 12, Satan is there as well. Because as soon as Jesus dips the sop, and then Judas does it, immediately Satan enters into him. Which implies to me that Satan was waiting for Jesus' permission to find out who he got. Again demonstrating the absolute authority of Jesus. Even Satan cannot do anything that Jesus does not allow him to do. Whether it's taking swine... They have to ask him whether it was destroying the things that belonged to Job. Satan always had to ask God. So God the Sovereign, Jesus the Son, is in charge of not only the activity of human beings here on planet Earth, but he is in charge of the demonic horde as well. And that's really good to know. It's really important to know that he has got you, that he can protect you. And that Satan can't get you without Jesus' permission. And if Jesus has already died for you, already written your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, there's no way he's going to turn you over to Satan, just like there was no way he was going to turn Peter over to Satan. But now he says, I'm going to dip in the bowl, and whoever dips with me, that's the one that Satan gets. It's the one of the twelve who dips with me into the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. In other words, I'm going to go be judged. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be put on a cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to the tomb. I'm going to raise again. I'm going to sail off into the blue. I'm going to take up my seat on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All of this is what is prophesied about me. All of this has to happen. So I'm going to go exactly where it is written I'm going to go. But woe to that man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to that man. How bad is it going to be? It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It would only be better for him if he had not existed. It would be better for that man if he had not existed than to be born and then betray the Son of Man. That's how bad it is. Now, people have, through the years, asked me questions like, do you think Judas was saved? Or do you think Judas could have been saved? And certainly, if you believe in Arminian free will theology, then you believe that Judas, at any point, could have exercised his own free will, could have chosen to make Jesus Lord and Savior, he could have betrayed him and then been saved. But if you take seriously Jesus' words here, for the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born, if he could have been saved. If he could have utilized his free will and talked Jesus into saving him, well, then it's a good thing he was born. But if he's going to eternal condemnation, outer darkness, if he's going to be under God's judgment for all eternity, it would have been better for him not to exist. Verse 22. While they were eating... Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. When Jesus said that, when he picked up the bread and he broke it, his flesh and blood were still on his bones. His body was still intact. When he told them to take and eat of his body, he didn't say, here, chew on my arm a little bit. The bread was clearly and obviously a symbol. It didn't become the body of Jesus. It wasn't some kind of hocus pocus so that then it became the body of Jesus. It was a symbol. It was flat bread. It was unleavened bread. And the unleavened bread is symbolic of Jesus. He spoke of himself several times as being the bread, the bread from heaven, the true bread. Now he picks up this bread, this unleavened bread, this sinless type bread, and then he breaks it. And that's another way in which it's like Jesus' body. Because according to Isaiah, his visage, his body, his corporal being was marred more than any man between the punching and the beating and the bruising and the plucking out of his beard and the crown of thorns and then being whipped across his back and then carrying that chunk of wood through the streets and then being nailed to that chunk of wood and hanging there. Isaiah said that that was going to be more than any man had ever endured, especially if you add to that not only all the punishment from men, but then the very wrath of God, so that for three hours the earth itself went dark, I think, so that human beings couldn't look on the body of Jesus 
while God was pouring out wrath on Jesus. His visage was marred more than any man. And in that way, breaking the bread is symbolic of the breaking of Jesus' body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, Luke takes the time to tell us that Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Every covenant is formed by blood. Animals have to die. The pieces have to be separated. The participants in the covenant have to move through the severed parts of the body. Blood is part of a covenant. This covenant he was forming was formed by his blood. And so when he hung on the cross and he bled out and he died, that was the inception, the formation of this new, better, higher covenant. It was qualitatively different than the old covenant. It was a better covenant based on a better high priest, based on better promises, based on saving people through faith rather than through their attempts and works and flesh and keeping the law. It was actually the covenant that accomplished true, lasting, genuine, eternal justification sanctification and glorification in other words this blood this spilling of this blood this death that is coming this death is so important that the eternity of all people hang on it that again I think is why he said wherever you tell this gospel tell about what this woman did for me Verse 9, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, you also preach what this woman has done, and it shall be spoken of as a memory of her. And here, 2,000 years later, we're still speaking about it, still reading about it, still remembering what that woman has done. And why, again, was that so important? Because she was pointing forward to the death, the death that accomplished the new covenant, the inception of genuine salvation based on the poured out sacrificial blood of Christ. So that's why none of the details were left to chance. That's why nothing could get in the way or spoil the very plan of God since eternity passed. There had to be everything lined up in exactly the way that Jesus determined it was going to be done so that he could accomplish his own death so that he could save his people. And again, not to be too redundant about it, but if he went through that kind of trouble to accomplish that level of detail in accomplishing his death, then what are the chances that he's going to allow details to keep the people he died for from coming to him. If he's absolutely sovereign and in charge of the details, as he continues to demonstrate himself to be, then he is also in charge of the details that are going to bring his people to himself. As you look back over your life, think about the places you've been, and think about what it took, what friends you had, what you read, how you heard, 
what preacher you listened to, how the gospel got to you, and how it is that you were enlightened, and how it is that you were converted, and how much opposition you faced along the way. All of those details are under his charge, the same way that he guaranteed that everything that happened culminated in his death, he's going to make sure that all the details and everything that happens culminates in your salvation. He's going to accomplish the salvation of his people the exact same way that he accomplished the death that he had to die. That's what makes the anointing of his body so important. And that's what makes his betrayal so important. So it would speed up the timeline so that he would be on the cross at Passover. And that's what makes this statement so important. My body's going to be broken. Take this bread. It is my body. And take this cup because it's the cup of the new covenant. And it's not being poured out for me. It's being poured out for you. It's being poured out for many other people. And it all has to be accomplished. And he accomplished it with perfection because he's the God of the details. Then verse 25, truly I say to you, I shall never drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he even got eschatological at this moment. Remembering that at the beginning of the book of Acts, the apostles come to him and say, after 40 days of talking about the kingdom, they come to him and say, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? They're wondering about the kingdom. They're wondering about his death. You're going to die. What does that mean for the kingdom? We believe you are the king. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah. You've been lauded as that. And now you're going to die? So his guarantee of his resurrection, his guarantee of his everlasting life, is that he says to them, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you. We're going to be together, and I'm going to drink it new in the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom promise, still good. That's why he told them, when you pray, pray to your father and say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, pray for the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is a guarantee. You're going to be in the kingdom. I'm going to be in the kingdom, Jesus says to his disciples. And I, to guarantee that to you, am not going to drink from the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Truly, I say to you, guaranteed, absolutely, I couldn't be more honest. Truly, I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Everything that's occurring here, as I keep saying, it's been prophesied. It's been written because it's written down. It has to occur. It has to happen. As Paul tells us, 
These are the very words of God that are God-breathed, breathed out by God. Therefore, they have to happen. And this time, he's going to reach back to Zechariah 13.7. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been working our way through Ezra, Nehemiah, and plugging in the prophets. And we plugged in Zechariah recently. And we talked about how Zechariah is quoted by Jesus at this very moment, on this very occasion. Because Zechariah tells us that the shepherd is going to be struck down, and then the sheep are going to scatter. Now, the apostles are determined that they are not going to give Jesus up. They're not going to scatter. They're having a hard time thinking that he could die. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers show up, Peter even takes out a sword and tries to fight back. So they are determined that they are going to stick with him, even if they have to die with him. But there's this prophecy. And the prophecy says that they're going to be scattered that the shepherd is going to be struck and they're going to scatter. So Jesus tells them yet again, you're going to scatter. You're going to leave. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Because that's what it says, you will all fall away. Despite the fact that you think you're going to be the one that's going to stand there, you're the one that's going to take the fight to the Romans, you're the one that's going to die with me, the truth is, I'm going to be struck, and then you're all going to scatter. So what does that really say about their free will for just a moment? We know what their will is. We know what their determination is. Their will and determination is we're going to stick by you and nothing can change that. But because it's already been written, well, they've got to do what they've got to do. Because Jesus has to die, well, then prophetically he had to be anointed. His body had to be anointed for the burial by the woman. So she did what she was supposed to do. Judas was driven out by the argument, the exchange over the spikenard and over the money because that's what he had to do. That's why he was a son of perdition from the beginning. Everybody had to play their part. Even though the apostles were doing what they wanted to do and they were stating what they wanted to do, nevertheless, they were going to do what Scripture already said they were going to do even down to a man with a pitcher of water. He was going to go out and gather that water at the time that was specific to when he would bump into the apostles. Even though he went out of his own free will and said, I'll be back, I'm going to get some water. Nevertheless, he went out at the exact moment so that the apostles could see him and follow him back to the exact right house. Those things, those details... Those things that are not left up to chance or happenstance, those things are all in the hand of an absolutely sovereign God. And once it's written down, it has to happen. So I say again, if God has written your name down as somebody he's going to save, well, then that has to happen. And the details of your life are working toward that accomplishment, even though sometimes it looks like the details of your life are driving you away from it. 
Jesus continued, verse 28, but after I've been raised, so again he's saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to be struck, just like Zechariah predicted, but then I'm going to raise again, I'm going to be back to life. But after I have been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. I'm going back to our home country. I'll meet you there. If you're looking for me, go there. That's where I'll find you. But Peter, who understood none of that, said, even though everyone may fall away, yet I will not. There it is, Mr. Sandal and Mouth. Mr. Overconfident, Mr. Ego, I won't fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, in other words, honestly, I'm telling you the truth here. Truly, I say to you that you yourself this very night before the rooster crows twice, in other words, before dawn, you shall deny me three times. So Peter's determination, Peter's quote-unquote free will is, even if everybody falls away, I'm not going to. Verse 31 tells us Peter kept insisting, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of them were saying the same thing too. So their determination was there's no way that's going to happen. Even though it's written in the scripture, there's no way that's going to happen. But in fact, despite their considered effort and desire and determination and will to be a certain way, the scripture had already said what they were going to do and what they were going to be like and that they were going to save their skin, and that they were going to scatter, and that Jesus was going to die alone, and he was going to raise, and there'd be nobody there but an angel. Even though they were determined that that was not the way it was going to come out, that's the way it came out. Because no matter what human beings think, no matter what determinations human beings make, it always comes out God's way. Or think of it this way. Once Jesus was in the grave, between Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the Gentiles, across the board, all of them believed he was dead. And all of them assumed he would stay dead. Some of them really, of necessity, needed him to stay dead. Across the board, everybody thought he was dead, three days dead, really genuinely dead. There was just no way that after three days he was going to get up from the grave. But prophecy said he was going to. He himself, the great prophet, said he was going to. So even though there wasn't a person on the planet to agree, and even his own 12 were scattered, and trying to save their own skin, even though there was nobody exercising their willpower, their decision, or their choice of Christ to get him up out of the grave, even though universally everybody thought he was dead and going to stay dead, the very fact that God himself determined that Jesus would live again, 
the very fact that Jesus said he had the power to lay his life down and the power to take it back up and that he had this command from his father means that the opinions and the will and the determination of every single human being accounted for absolutely nothing. It could all be wrapped up in nothing. And even though there was nobody willing, nobody deciding, nobody empowering him, he got up again anyway. Because it's not up to us, it's up to him, it's up to his sovereignty, it's up to his fulfillment of everything that God determined for him to do before the foundation of the world. So, so that makes you really secure. Because even if everybody doesn't think you're saved, even if you've found yourself waking up in the night thinking, how could God save a wretch like me? In the end, the only opinion, the only will, the only power that matters is God. And if it's been written, if it's been determined, then the God of the details is going to make sure that the details of this life lead to the ultimate end, which is the salvation of all his people, despite the details and despite what the will of men might be. So Peter argues after Jesus says, truly I say to you, you yourself this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you shall three times deny me. Peter kept insisting. And he said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing too. Next week, we'll look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the actual betrayal taking place. And then Jesus accomplishing exactly on time, exactly in the right place, exactly in the correct sequence, he accomplishes everything that is written. Because if it's written, if it's determined in the councils of heaven, then it's going to happen. Which, by the way, also means if he is determined to bring about a kingdom, that belongs to Israel and regather the 12 tribes and bring them back to Jerusalem and David's greater son is going to rule on a throne from Jerusalem even if preachers, human beings even if theologies and whole denominations deny that that's going to happen and even if the events of life the details of the world look like that's not going to happen the truth of the matter is it's written because it's written we're told to pray along those lines and because Jesus is going to be glorified in being that son of David ruling over his people on planet earth then that is something that absolutely has to happen regardless of what human beings think regardless of the will of men regardless of the details of life or the craziness of this world everything that God has said has to be accomplished And that's what Jesus demonstrates time and time again here in the book of Mark, that he is in absolute control. And that control is very reassuring to a wretch like me. Okay, Internet people, 
I got to say, I'm really, really talked out. Let's see, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, and I've been talking all morning, and I've preached this message twice. I even led songs this morning. I think I'm at the point where I have no voice left to work with. But I appreciate all of you. I'm very, very grateful for your continued love and support of GCA and for allowing me to do this for a living. I hope you've been edified by this message today. Otherwise, there was really no point to my standing in a completely empty building and saying it all again. God bless you. God keep you. And we'll talk to you next time. There aren't a lot of people in the room to say goodbye to the Internet congregation. So I'll just say goodbye, Internet congregation. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.